Well, happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, uh, to, to say that mothers make an impact uh, on our lives is an understatement. And uh, not only uh, on our lives, but the, but the world, the history of the world. And so uh, this week I was uh, kind of preparing for this message and ran across some, some um, little known quotes from mothers of famous people. Now, I don't know if you've heard any of these before. I can tell the anticipation is tense uh, here and feel it even coming from Wilkinsburg and Robinson and Washington as well. So let me give you some of these and <clears throat> I'm gonna put the quote up on the screen and then see if the kids can figure out who said this, all right? We're gonna let the kids do this. Here we go, here's the first one, you ready? I don't care what you discovered, you still could have written. Who, 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 what mother would have said that? Anybody? Columbus, of course, Columbus's mother. Susanna, that's not a picture of her, by the way, that's Christopher. But they say she looked a lot like her son, I don't know. Okay, here's another one, you ready? Can't you paint on walls like the other children? Do you have any idea how hard it is to get that stuff off the ceiling? <laughs> Who could have said that? Whose mother may have said that? Michelangelo. Michelangelo. Yeah, friend Francesca. It's a great mom. Okay, here's one. I don't care where you think you have to, young man. Midnight is past your curfew. Of course, Paul Revere's mom said that. Deborah. Just think what would have, how that would have changed history if she had, he had listened. Okay. <laughs> Only three more. And I'm more excited about that than you are. <laughs> Why do these sound so fun in my study during the week? But, uh, okay, here's one. <clears throat> but it's your senior picture. Can't you do anything about your hair, styling, gel, mousse, something? Who's mom? Albert Einstein's mother said that. <laughs> Picture speaks for itself, doesn't it? Just two more. Okay, if you aren't hiding your report card inside your jacket, take out your hand and show me what you have there. Who said that? Napoleon. See, I always wondered why he did that. His report card was in there. One more. Pause with that stupid hat you're wearing. Can't you just wear a baseball cap like the other kids? Who? Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. But we didn't get his hat up there. Well, that was a lot of fun. So, <clears throat> oh man. So, mothers have this weighty responsibility, tremendous privilege, responsibility. And man, everybody knows it goes fast, doesn't it? It's like uh, parenting is just like this big window at the beginning, and then it closes and closes and closes. So if you are a mother of a young child, before they graduate from high school, you have 936 weeks to pour into their lives. 936 M&Ms in the jar. And then before you know it, 
They're heading into kindergarten. Remember how cute they are in kindergarten? And you still have a good bit of time. You have um, 676 weeks before they graduate from high school. I mean, kindergarten whips by, and then they're in middle school, those middle school days. And when they hit middle school, you've got 312 weeks before they graduate from high school. And then that goes fast. And in ninth grade, high school itself. And I got to tell you, having experienced it a few times when they hit ninth grade, it's like a blur from there. Those four years go fast. When they hit the ninth grade, you still got 208 weeks to continue to, to build into their lives before they take off to another adventure in their life. Then, if you're like Lori and me, and you have a graduating senior, our last of four is graduating. How many other parents of senior parents? Okay, yeah, we'll meet later and cry and stuff. <laughs> because you only have, we only have four M&Ms left in the jar. It goes fast. And what you're able to, to, to build into the lives of your children during that time, no one else can do that. And what you don't build into their lives during that time, no one else can do that. The things that you build into the lives of your kids are not the stuff out here. It comes from, from within. It's who you are. And so that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our study through the Beatitudes and give some application for moms. What does it look like to have that the inner part, that character that God desires you to have? Father, that's our prayer as we go through your word. We pray that you would teach us as only you can do. And we ask, Lord, that you are the one who drives down deep into our hearts the things that you want us to, to know and hear and do this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're considering the, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, the Sermon on the Mount, some believe, was Jesus' first sermon for sure. It set the tone for all his teaching. The, the sermon establishes how those who follow Jesus are supposed to live. It gives the instruction regarding relationships. It gives the instruction regarding marriage, always between a man and a woman. It gives the instruction regarding murder or down deeper when you hate someone, lust, adultery, worry, money, building your spiritual house on solid rock, living grounded, all in the Sermon on the Mount. Man, that's a message in and of itself for moms, isn't it? But before Jesus gets to the conduct, the things we are supposed to do, he begins with our character. He says, before you can do anything worthwhile, it begins with who you are. And so his sermon begins with these upside down truths we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitude is a Latin word for blessed. And the Greek word we read blessed, we, and we translate blessed through here, really means to be happy, happy. 
Different version than the world's happiness, but that's what it means to be happy. So let me read through the Beatitudes. Again, the character passages for our heart. And let me substitute the word happy here. Chapter 5, verse 3 of Matthew. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God or sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, for sure, the version of happiness Jesus is talking about here is not the world's version. In the world, external things make us happy. And so when the pirates or the stealers or the penguins make the playoffs, we are happy. When our child brings home an A or a B or a C or sometimes just a passing grade, it doesn't matter, we are happy. When a mom of a newborn sleeps through the night, we are happy. There are so many things from the outside that causes us to be happy. But the word that Jesus uses here does not describe happiness that comes from on the outside. He describes a happiness that comes from within, a joy that comes from our heart, an inner contentment that is circumstance-proof, a peace that passes all understanding. a a happiness that has spiritual underpinnings that shore up our life. So we've been saying our life, you know, looks something like this if we were to graph it, right? There are ups and downs all through life. There are things, man, that couldn't make us any happier. We have great weeks. We have great things going on. And we say, man, that is tremendous. There are things that devastate us, discouragements that hit, sometimes for a day, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a season of life. And we can't help but be impacted by those. We're human. And so when these things hit us from the outside, certainly it impacts our emotions. But Jesus says, I got something deeper for you. You're going to be impacted by it, no doubt. <clears throat> but, but when you know me, you, you can kind of sell through the middle of this. And you can have a happiness regardless of whether you're up here or down here. A deep, settled joy. A deep, settled peace. A contentment. that only comes from a relationship with the living God. This happiness from within, Jesus says, begins, we saw last time, begins with verse 3, happy are the poor in spirit. We saw last time that word poor means beggar. A person who is blind, paralyzed, unable to do anything on their own. A spiritual beggar who comes to the point, not, it's not a personality thing, it's not an economic thing, but rather a person who comes to the point when they realize they are spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing they can do, not one thing they can do to work their way to God, to earn a relationship with God, to be good enough for God. That's where happiness starts. And when we're spiritually helpless, we understand we have nothing to offer. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? And then that leads us to the second truth 
verses 3 and 4 kind of go together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That leads us to the second truth. Blessed are those who what? Who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, for sure, there are many things that uh, cause us to mourn and bring grief into our life. The, the death of a loved one, that pain is indescribable. And some of you this year have lost a, a spouse, a wife, or a husband, and you're still working through that grief. Sometimes people, after a <clears throat> someone dies, someone will say, how's the person doing? And, and we say, there's, there's no way to know, Right? Because after the memorial service and the celebration of, of life, then it hits. And there's no way around grief. It is a process you have to go through. Some of you have lost a child, and the pain is deep. Only those of you who have lost a child understand the depth of that pain. So deep that uh, statistics are 70%, 7 out of 10 couples don't make it when they lose a child, only by the grace of God, because the pain is so deep and you handle grief in different ways, only by the grace of God do they, uh, do they stay together and, and make their, their marriage work and honor him. Many of you have lost a, a, a parent this year, a mom or a dad, and, and you miss them. And the physical uh, grief uh, is great, but, but there's also, when we lose a parent, there's also that realization, isn't there? that the season of our life is over. When a parent is living, there's, there's some security there, part of us there, but, but now a season of life is over, and sometimes waves of emotion come unexpectedly. Some of you are mourning a miscarriage or another miscarriage, and your heart is broken, and, uh, and you're questioning. Some of you have experienced the death of, of a dream, some of you have longed for something, but it uh, hadn't happened. For some of you, that dream has been to have a child, and Mother's Day is one of the most difficult uh, days for you. We mourn different things in different ways, and, and certainly God's is the one who comforts us, and he's the one who in time heals our wounds. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Second Corinthians chapter one tells us, uh, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the Lord and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our trouble so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received from God. So if you're going through a challenging time, God's going to use that so that you can comfort others. So the first point I make is, I want to make is certainly when we go through challenging times, God is there to comfort us. But the second point I want to make is that's not the type of mourning that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, verse 4. The mourning Jesus is talking about is not brought on by circumstances from the outside. Remember, the Beatitudes are about our character, things that happen on the inside. This morning, described in chapter 5, verse 4, is internal. Here, Jesus is talking about a person who mourns his or her sin, a person who is grieved because of his or her spiritual depravity. Mourning here is the emotional pain brought on 
when we finally come to grips and realize our spiritual condition. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. <clears throat> so Jesus had uh, these friends and uh, he's off preaching and uh, someone comes and says, uh, this friend of yours, Lazarus, is sick unto death. He's about to die. And Jesus says, okay, and he continues preaching. Lazarus dies three days later after Lazarus has been buried in the tomb. Jesus comes and he stands before the tomb. I want to read um, uh, chapter 11, verse 35, which is the shortest verse in the Bible. If you're having trouble with scripture memorization, here's a verse you want to start with. So Jesus is there standing before the tomb Shortest verse in the Bible, chapter 11, verse 35, what? Jesus wept. Now, you got to ask yourself the question, why in the world did Jesus weep? Why was he weeping? By the way, there are two words for weeping. One is just wailing. That's not the word used here. This is kind of a silent tears, a silent weeping. People saw that he was emotional. And uh, some said, well, we know why he's weeping. Look at verse 36. The Jews said, see how he loved him. He is weeping because his friend is gone. But, but why do you think Jesus was, was crying? See, in a, in a matter of minutes, he knew Lazarus was going to walk out from, from the grave. In a matter of minutes, he knew that Mary and Martha, their tears would be turned to tears of joy. In a matter of minutes, he knew that people would see that he had power over death and some would follow him. In fact, this is the miracle that caused all those people to line up on the streets for the triumphal entry. So why was Jesus weeping? I believe Jesus was mourning for sin, not his, but the sin of mankind. He knew in that grave was the, was the final physical penalty for death, the, the, the result of sin. He, he knew that the, the wickedness that is delivered to the heart of every man, he knew the unimaginable pain that he felt around him because of death, but, but, the, but the pain that sin would cause, every murder, divorce, adultery, greed, envy, every act of violence, every war started because of sin. And Jesus was weeping for the tragic consequences of sin and so must we. And that starts by mourning our own sin, our own state, our own inclination to walk away from God. Even as a believer, every day the temptations are there. There are three words that I want to uh, put out uh, to you that will describe, I believe, that describes the morning Jesus is talking about here. The first word is the word recognition. Recognition. I need to recognize my sin. It's amazing, isn't it? Anytime in Scripture someone gets close to God, there is a renewed realization that they are a sinner. 
Again, it's that upside down thing. Uh, we, we think the closer we get to God, man, it's kind of like a glory on this side of heaven. It's so fantastic. And we realize how, how great we are as we're growing. That's not, that's called spiritual pride. That's a problem. The closer we get to God, the more we see what a sinner we are. When I was growing up, my sisters had these, um, these mirrors. One side was a normal mirror, another side was a magnifying mirror. And then on the side, these lights, like lights about as bright as that right there. And so when I was in my adolescent years, which is a tough time anyway, right? I'd go in there and turn around that magnifying glass and see my face and I said, oh my goodness, this is really, really bad. I mean, it looks bad from afar, but magnified. This is bad. The closer we get to God, the more our sin is magnified. The more we realize that he is God and we're not. It's what happened to Adam and Eve, right? Uh, in, in the garden, when, when they had communion with him and then they sinned, what happened when God said, hey, what, what are you doing? They hid from him. The prophet Isaiah, when he saw a vision of God, Isaiah 6, 5, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. I am ruined. Peter in the boat, remember? Jesus does this miracle, catch all these fish, fish are in the boat. The boat's about to sink, there's so many fish in it. And that's when Peter, that's when it clicks to him, this miracle of Jesus this guy's God. Jesus is really who he says he is. He's God. And when Peter saw him, Luke chapter five, verse eight, he fell at Jesus's knees and said, what? Go away from me. For I am a sinful man. The more we grow in our walk with Christ, the more we realize how sinful we are. Now, Jesus is not saying, as some would interpret this verse, that you need to go sell all you have and go to a monastery and beat yourself on the back every day to remind yourself how uh, depraved you are. Jesus is not saying that at all. You're not saying you need to wear sackcloth and ashes all the time. You You don't need to be in some perpetual state of grief. He is saying that internal happiness will come when we realize that we are a spiritual beggar and can't do anything about it and we mourn that state because that's what drives us to him. He is saying that the internal happiness comes when we open our eyes to who we really are, not who we want to be, not the impression we want to give, not who we hope we would be, but who we really are in front of God, the fact that we mourn sin in our life. Now, how does mourning sin bring happiness? We'll try to answer that question as we move on. You know, a lot of Christians, a lot of us, we can, come, we can become very comfortable with our sin, right? All of us have an inclination to sin. I got, I got my weak areas and you got yours. And they always show up. And they're called temptations because they're, they're tempting, they're alluring. And we're always like one step away, one word away, one thought away from going down that path. And sometimes when we go down that path and we kind of enjoy that sin 
Or, or we've done it so long, we don't even know it's sin anymore. We're blinded by it. Our hearts get hardened in certain areas. So Jesus said, you got to go back. And really look at your heart. There's a great prayer. Uh, let me give it to you. It's at the end of Psalm 139, a prayer of David. Here's a prayer we need to pray every day. David says at the end of that Psalm, search me, God. And, and, and know my heart, the, word, the better word, make known my heart. You see, sometimes I don't even realize that I'm sinning. I've been doing it for so long, I'm so comfortable with it. It's become a way of life. Make known that to me. I don't want to do that anymore. Make me mourn my sin. Test me and make known my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to recognize my sin. Secondly, help me to own my sin. Responsibility. You know, there's something in human nature, isn't, isn't there, that always wants to blame others for our issues. And we inherited that from our, from our parents, Adam and Eve. Right after uh, they sinned in the garden, they both took the fruit, God confronted them, and remember what Adam said? It's the woman's fault. She was the one who made me eat the apple. I didn't even want her in the first place. You're the one who said it wasn't good for me to be alone. Then you zap me and I was out. I wake up without a rib and then she's there. <laughs> it's her fault. And then she said, well, time out. So fast, Adam. Hey, God, this snake you created, the serpent. You created him. I didn't. And he's the one who deceived me. It's the serpent who deceived me. And we have been blaming others for our sin ever since. I'd be a better parent if my parents hadn't dropped the ball like they did. I wouldn't be tempted to hook up with that old friend on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, if my husband would, uh, would meet my needs. I got married too young and I need to find myself. Don't you love it when people say that? I need to find, what does that mean, find myself? I found you, there you are. Now get on, get on with your life. I got married too old, so I was set in my ways. I fly off the handle, not because I want to. It's not my fault. The kids, they drive me absolutely crazy. My life is, we hear this one all the time. My young parents, my life is out of balance because my kids are involved in what? Too many activities. Who signed them up for those activities? It's always someone else's fault. The way I was raised, the pressure I have, the situation, my friends, problems with my spouse. We are pure and innocent people surrounded by a bunch of heathens. <laughs> That's the problem. Mourning my sin means I stand up like a woman. I stand up like a man. And I say, That's mine. I own it. It's no one's fault. I admit I have sinned against the holy God. It saddens me. 
It sickens me. It brings godly sorrow to my heart before I get found out. Getting found out, that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is right here and now. No one else knows, but God knows, and I'm sinning against him, and that makes me mourn. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's just, I'm sorry because I got caught. It was a little embarrassing for me. Check this out. See what godly sorrow has produced in you. Here's a great definition of mourning our sin. See what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Man, that's a tremendous definition of mourning. I am serious about doing something about this sin. So there is um, recognition of it, responsibility for it, and that leads us to the second part, because if you just stop there, you didn't do anything. The last part is repentance. And repentance means I leave my sin behind. J.I. Packer says it this way, in repentance, there must be a demonstration either by testimony or by confession or by changed behavior or by altogether that one has what? Left one sin behind. Augustine says it this way, he who truly bewells the sin he has committed never commits the sin he has bewailed. In other words, I don't bewail my sin, I don't mourn for it, and then just keep on doing it. Or I never really mourned it in the first place. Think about that. When we go to God and we say, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, and we turn right around and do it, that's not repentance. David said it this way, if I cherished sin in my heart, if I just fondled sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Take your Bibles and turn with me. Uh, I want to look at this real quick. Psalm 51. This is a Psalm of David after he sinned against Bathsheba. He committed adultery. And then he had her husband, Uriah, killed. Remember, he sent him out into battle, had the troops, ordered the troops to pull back, and, and Uriah is killed in battle. Then he lies to the nation at least nine months because the baby's born. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes and and uh, confronts him, and then David finally says, okay, uh, I, that's me, I sinned. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. So we can only think that David fell before the Lord, and then later on, he, he wrote down this, this prayer, this inspired prayer of, of repentance for us today. It's a tremendous uh, instruction. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your love of covenant, covenantal love, a beautiful a Hebrew word that reminds us that God's love for us is, un when we trust in Christ, his love for us is unconditional. He never leaves us. He'll never forsake you. So David says, man, I have sinned greatly, but I'm coming to you and I'm basing it on the fact that you're my father, I'm your son, and, and you promise this covenantal love. According to your great compassion, that's the Hebrew word 
rakom. It uh, comes from a word that means mother's womb, where there is protection and safety and nourishment. God, that's who you are. I know who I am, but that's who you are. And so have mercy on me. Blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned. Time out, David. What about Bathsheba? How about Uriah? You sinned against them. Yeah, David says, I did, and I'll pay the consequence for that. But my sin is first and foremost against God, God against you, and you only have I sinned. And that is such an important point for all of us to learn. Because you see, if I sin against someone else, I can justify it, right? Because they sinned against me, I can sin against them. But when I realize that it's my sin offends God, that I'm sinning against him, that's, that's a game changer. I've done what's evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. This is critical to repentance. You know what David's saying there? Whatever the consequences are, I will not cry foul. I love it when people say, oh, I've sinned. I'm sorry. What are the consequences? Oh, I don't like those consequences. Too much. I'll do what I want to do. I'm, I'm not staying here at the church if those are the consequences. That's not Repentance. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inward place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. What's that? That's that happiness that Jesus is talking about that comes from the inside. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, because I can't do it myself. I am a spiritual beggar. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. When we realize that we are spiritual beggars, we have nothing to bring to the table. Our best works fall short. When we, when we start to mourn our sin and really realize that, that this is something that, that grieves the heart of God, I'm sinning against God. I'm not getting back at other people. I'm sinning against God. That spiritual mourning drives us to the only one who can do anything about it, and that's Jesus Christ when we realize that we are spiritual beggars and truly mourn our sin, we don't want to be where we are in this state away from God. We come to Jesus and he comforts us. He forgives us. He consoles us with his grace. We recognize our sin, take responsibility for our sin and leave our sin. Then finally, we can find the comfort that we wanted and desired all along. You see, we think we can find comfort in our sin, but that's where the misery is. And when we leave that sin, it drives us to Jesus. And that's when we find out who we really are. That's when we find out that our spiritual identity is in him alone.
our identity. Our significance is in him. It's not in our appearance. It's not in our stuff. It's not in our children's success. I don't care how many bumper stickers you have on the back of your car about your honor student kid. Your significance is not found in your student or your child. Your significance has to be found in Jesus Christ alone. In him, when we mourn our sin, it drives us to him, and there we find security. Our security is not in our spouse. You know, our spouses, they're great people, but they make really poor gods. And when we deify them and try to find in them the only thing we can find in God, we will be perpetually disappointed and insecure. And that's why a lot of marriages fall apart because a a wife wants her husband to be God and he makes a bad God. Acceptance. It's not in a friend group. Our acceptance comes through Jesus Christ. And when we run to him, man, there's where we find the true acceptance that we've always wanted. That's the comfort. Our forgiveness. Repentance means we leave the sin behind. And so Satan comes and says, what are you doing? Are you serious? You think you're a parent? You think you're a good mom? You think you can raise your kid? Look at your past. Look at all that stuff you're dragging behind you. Look what you did in your past. And, and, you're, gonna, and you're gonna raise this kid up in a God way. Who are you trying to fool? And you can say, Satan, don't come at me with that stuff because my past is forgiven. I don't drag around that anchor anymore. I've repented of it. I've left it behind. Jesus Christ has paid for it in full. It's not here anymore. So don't come at me with that. Empowerment. Man, I can find the power I need through the Holy Spirit who lives within me. See, we're spiritual beggars. We don't have anything to offer, but God comes in. And he gives us everything we need to do what he's called us to do. You see, when we mourn our sin, that's when we finally find true happiness because it drives us to Jesus and our spiritual identity, our significance, our security, our acceptance, our forgiveness, our empowerment is found in him alone. And that's why Jesus says, happy are those who mourn their sin, who take responsibility for it and repent of it. Happy are those who mourn their sin for they will be what? Comforted. That's where we find what we've always been looking for. I'm gonna invite Laura Ankrum up. Laura directs our women's ministry and she's gonna come and pray for us at this time close our service. I'd like to invite all the women to come forward with me down here, whether you're a mother or not. So if you'll come down and join me, I will, would like to pray with you. And the fellows are going to be joining us in prayer as well. <clears throat> After we finish praying, Kirk is going to lead us in a final worship song. 
And I'd like you to stay down with me here at the altar as we sing together, okay? All right, let's bow our heads and pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of mothers and motherhood. Lord, I want to pray that you would meet each mother here in the midst of her circumstances, no matter what they might be. Lord, I ask for strength when she is weak. I ask for wisdom when she is unsure. I pray that you would give her patience with the demands of motherhood. I ask that you would give her faith in your care and your provision. And I pray that you would give her a deep love for the little ones that you have entrusted to her. Lord, I ask that you would come alongside single moms as they rear their children alone. Lord, I pray for the moms that are facing that empty M&M jar. Lord, that you would blossom their relationship with their adult children as they let go. Lord, I pray for those whose desire to be a mother has not yet been fulfilled. And Lord, for those women, I ask that you would hold them close and fill the emptiness in their hearts. Lord, don't let them ever let go of hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would heal strained relationships between mother and child. And Lord, let us be quick to forgive. Lord, we want to pray that you would bring comfort to those mothers who have lost a child. Lord, I ask that you would grant restoration and peace for those who are secretly grieving the loss of an aborted child. And Lord, for those who have lost their mother, I pray that you would bring sweet memories of her, especially today. Lord, I want to pray for each woman here today, whether she's a mother or not, that our love would be deep and tender towards those around us. And Lord, I pray that our character would honor you, Lord, because there are children watching our lives. Lord, we want to teach children to know you and do your will. So help us to boldly proclaim and live out your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. I confess Bowing here I find my rest And without you I fall apart You're the one That guides
Sag's mal. 